Lord, we thank you for your word. So many times, Lord, we um, don't realize necessarily what it is that you're going to feed us with from Sunday to Sunday, and yet um, it is the means by which you address our needs in ways that maybe we wouldn't understand. And we just thank you how your word is, is living and breathing and active and how it penetrates our hearts and, Lord, how, how it digs deep down in, in such a way uh, that it, it penetrates our being. And, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that your word um, is not just a piece of literature, Lord, that it is alive and active and powerful. And, Lord, may it fashion and shape us today. Lord, what we, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us today? And would you allow me simply to be your mouthpiece, that you would have your way with us through the preaching of your word? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've entitled this uh, sermon, Deja Vu, and probably... Um, you have experienced that before. In case you're wondering what it is, deja vu is the feeling you get when you see or experience something for the first time, but it seems like you've seen and experienced it before. That has happened to me on a number of occasions. Now, I don't know if that's just getting old um, or if that is just part of life, and this happens to people, but I remember experiencing this when I was younger, and it's not just an intellectual phenomenon. It actually is kind of a whole body phenomenon where it's like I, I, I'm seeing something that I know I've seen before and I'm hearing something that I've heard before and I'm, I'm smelling some things that I, I've smelled before. This, this all seems like I've been here before. Have you guys been there? Have you experienced that? I mean, that's deja vu and it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon to study. But in a more colloquial sense... The expression deja vu is simply used to describe a repeating phenomenon. In other words, we might say something like, here we go again. And I kind of had that thought this past week when the fires started happening down in L.A. It's kind of like, okay, we've been through this before, right? Here we go again. Oh, no. And so there's a sense in which that deja vu expression communicates that idea. And, and that is what we run into as we come to this text. For many who are coming to a text like this in the Gospel of Mark or are reading the Gospel of Mark, there is a sense in which they're saying, wait a second, I thought we've already covered this material. I thought this has already taken place in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, didn't we read something already about Jesus feeding a large crowd? I mean, didn't he take loaves and fishes and multiply them and, and give them to all these people? And there were so many things that were, so, so much food that was left over. And haven't we been down this road before? And what's the answer? The answer, of course, is yes. But this, friends, is a new day. And this is a, a new day in a new place, a new territory. This is a Gentile territory of Decapolis where this is taking place. And there are new lessons for the disciples to learn, and therefore there are new lessons for us to learn along the way. And his disciples have been with him for months, watching, listening, and learning about who Jesus is. If you remember, they've seen him cast out demons. They've been present when he has healed the sick. They've been with him as he calms the storm. 
They've listened to his teaching and his preaching. They've been a part of his miracles. I mean, he says, go out as he's multiplying the loaves and the fish, and you give these to the people. They're a part of what he's doing. There they are. But still, they have difficulty in understanding. Now, there's a sense in which when we are reading this, we're kind of banging our heads against the wall. We would love to be able to reach in and slap these disciples silly. To say, don't you get it? Can't you see what's going on here? But Jesus, their master and rabbi, is patient with them. Let me just ask you this. Aren't you glad that he's patient with you? I mean, are we not just like these disciples? Over and over and over again, Jesus shows us himself, shows us his power, shows us his way, and we just kind of like, we, we miss it. We don't see it. And we think we have a better understanding. But he continues to nurture their growth in understanding. And friends, that is what he does with us. And so uh, this morning, I would like for us to look at this passage through this lens, because I think this is really what's going on. It's not profound in the sense that there's this incredibly um, uh, you know, riveting point that's coming out of this text. I think there's something somewhat mundane about what's happening here in the sense that Jesus is just training his disciples in their process of growth. And in particular, I've said it this way, he's always at work nurturing the spiritual growth of his disciples. Now friends, that is good for us to know. Why? Because Jesus is always at work nurturing our spiritual growth. And we go through circumstances, we go through experiences, we go through trials and difficulties, and God is at work nurturing our spiritual growth. In times of great success, in times of failure, in times of the mundane, even when we lack understanding, and that is true for the disciples, it's also true for us. So let's begin by considering then the spiritual lessons that are repeated here in this text. I'm not going to read the whole section again here, but I want you to understand what we have here is the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it's not surprising that some people would come to a text like this who may not necessarily be believers, but they look at this and they're somewhat skeptical. There's a lot of people that look at the Bible and they try and cut it up and, and say, well, this doesn't belong and this doesn't belong and this is what this person's doing here and that they've added this and they've taken this away. And some people might come to this passage and just simply say, all Mark is doing is repeating the same story that he did in chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, we find that the feeding of the 5,000. But friends, that just simply isn't true. If we're going to be honest with the text of Scripture, it's simply not true. Let me show you, uh, or let's talk a little bit about some of the similarities and differences that are in both accounts. Now, I'm, I'm walking through this because I think there's an, there's, there's an aspect where we need to be confident in the Word of God that we hold in our hands. Now, I want you to think about this. Similarities. In both accounts, we find that a great crowd gathered to listen to Jesus somewhere out in the wilderness. In both accounts, Jesus was moved by compassion for the needs of the people who were gathered. In both accounts, Jesus' uh, disciples expressed doubts 
that such a large group could be fed in the wilderness. Not only that, Jesus inquired of the disciples as to what provisions were on hand. And they only had a few loaves and some fish. Again, Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes to such a degree that all the people present are satisfied to the full. And then a large number of leftovers are gathered up by the disciples, put into baskets. And not only that, in both of these accounts, they are followed by a confrontation with the Pharisees. Now, it's not surprising that there's elements that are similar here. But friends, there are also some differences in this account. Notice that the people are with Jesus in this account for three days, not just one. Not only that, there are seven loaves, not five. Well, you say those are little simple things that some kind of scribal person could put in there and change the story how they want. All right. Not only that, there are fewer baskets that are left over in this account. Also, in chapter 6, the word for fish is a generic word for fish. In this particular account, it literally is sardines. Finally, Mark records Jesus' words referring back to both miracles. Look, if you would, at verse 19 and verse 20. Jesus speaking to his disciples, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the answer is what? Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So if you want to claim that these are two different accounts, guess who you have to argue with? Jesus himself in the account is referring to both of these feeding of multitudes in the wilderness. See, if you just allow the text to speak, if you just sit back and read it, you see that these are two separate accounts, similar yet different. And not only that, this particular one continues with some specific lessons. And so here's some lessons for us from verses 1 through 10 in particular. First of all, this feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 reminds us about the truth that Jesus is the bread of life. Now, I know that when we spent time in, uh, during that, that first feeding of the 5,000, we spent a lot of time in emphasizing this. But let me just r- remind you that... that What we're seeing here is that Jesus is the greater Moses. If you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and God provided manna from heaven. And what does manna mean? What is this? But it was God's provision. God's provision for people who were hungry. That's found in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 4. But now Jesus provides bread Uh, provides bread from heaven. He is the bread of life, and he's doing that for all. Let me remind you of John's record of Jesus' words. You might want to turn there and read this with me. John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51. So I'm not making this up. Jesus himself is identifying himself as the bread of life and connecting what he's doing to what Moses did in the wilderness. 
We have here John 6, 48 through 51. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, is there any question about what Jesus is saying there? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What's the this that he's referring to? Himself. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus is identifying himself through both of these feedings that he is the one that truly satisfies. And he shows that through a miracle of provision of bread and then some fish, but that miracle is pointing to himself as the bread of life, as the one who provides not physical food, but spiritual food that lasts for eternity. So Jesus is saying he's the one that truly, it truly satisfies. And now we must remember that Jesus wasn't just hanging out with 4,000 people. He was with them for three days, it says. What was he doing during that time? Well, as we know, based on what Mark has already showed us in the gospel, Jesus spent the bulk of that time teaching and preaching about the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. And so he's connecting the dots now by saying, listen, if you eat this food, if you eat what I am telling you, if you, if you absorb it, if you, if you see what is true, if you have ears to hear then you will have the bread of life that is necessary for eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but there's some smells that I love. All right? One of them is coffee. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone else here speak my language there? All right? I mean, I can walk into a coffee shop, um, and I'm not, not so much a Starbucks or a Pete's, because usually it's not so potent there, but you've been to some coffee shops that are a little bit more, um, I don't know, they have a lot more different options, and, and, the, and the coffee's open, and you just walk in, and you get this waft of wonderful smell. Just love it. I love coffee. I, I love not just to drink it, but also to smell it. In fact, I'd like some coffee right now, I think. I'm just <laughs> playing, right? But I can tell you what, there's the smell of freshly baked bread is also incredibly appealing, isn't it? I mean, I love bagels. I love just bread that just comes out of the oven. And you know, there's a lot of things you can eat, but bread is so satisfying. And it just, you just smell it. You put it under your nose and just take it in, and then you, you crunch through the, okay, you guys are all getting hungry now, and you want to wash it down with some coffee. But you get the point here. Bread is something in that culture that satisfied. It was a staple of the people. It's what they needed. And Jesus is saying, I am that bread. When you're walking through life and going through some difficulty, smell. And what you smell is the life of Christ that brings satisfaction. So the truth about Jesus is the bread of life is the first lesson. The second lesson that, that this, uh, this uh, accountant gives us is that the bread of life is for both the Jew and the Gentile. Now, why am I saying that? Because the feeding of the 5,000 
took place in a context that was primarily where Jews lived. Now, here in the region of Decapolis, Jesus performs the same miracle in a primarily Gentile context. If you're with us last week, you understood that Jesus is now on this journey through a Gentile region. He went up to Tyre, to Sidon, and then he came all the way back down again to the eastern side, to Decapolis. And this is where he is actually meeting these people. And Jesus is saying that the material is not sufficient for mankind. The physical bread is not sufficient. Matthew 4, 4, this is what Jesus says. Man cannot live by what? Bread alone. You see, the material is insufficient. Jesus is the one who is sufficient. He is the answer. We need spiritual food. We need Christ himself as the bread of life. And so like, like stories like Jonah... Uh, The three accounts that we had, the two that we covered last week in this particular account, they all are pointing us to the fact that, that these supposed Gentiles who are identified by the Apostle Paul as far off away from the the truth of Israel are actually much closer than we can imagine. In fact, Gentiles might be ostracized by the Jews but they are not ostracized by God. And pretty much everyone in this room is evidence of that. Now, to put it into perspective in today's context, there are those who are enemies of God's people, God's people being the church, Christians who make up the church. But those enemies, whatever they might look like, however adamant they are, and however aggressive they are, and however intimidating they are, are not beyond the compassion of Jesus. You talk to missionaries around the world who go into very, very difficult contexts, and they they enter into the lives of people who are totally opposed to Christianity, and they simply begin to open the Word of God and simply begin to share what it says, and people begin to read it, and they're like, this is not what I was told the Bible was about. This Jesus that I'm reading about here is not the Jesus that whatever my religion is or whatever that group is that's kind of overseeing me has been portraying. What I'm seeing here is a different Jesus. This Jesus actually is really attractive. And see, this is what Mark is doing with his gospel. He's showing who Jesus is. He is an attractive Messiah. And so when Jesus sends these Gentiles away, it's not to get rid of them, but friends, it's to liberate them because they've been with him for three days where he has been teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He has fed them, and there are some who have heard, there are some who have seen, there are some who have eaten of the spiritual food, and now they're satisfied because of the bread of life. Third, there's always an abundance of grace. It's always really interesting when you look through these stories. You know, we start out with, you know, five loaves and some fish and seven loaves and some fish, and at the end we have baskets full. How does that work? How can we tap into that kind of power? (laughs) You can't tap in for your own purposes. That is just God's power on display. But it is his grace that continues and is, is an abundance. 
Friends, it's worth being reminded that God is still working today. You know, the, 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 the move of the kingdom of God through the world goes through different times and seasons in, in, in different cultures and different countries. And there, there was a time when the move of God hit the United States and there was great revival. J.D. was talking about Jonathan Edwards and uh, the northeastern part of the United States. Huge, incredible revivals took place there. The revivals that took place across England. Um, and then as, in particular, the, the English, when the Eng- English Empire grew, and don't connect these two things together, but when the English Empire grew, then Christians went behind the growing of the empire, taking the gospel where they went. And it went to places, and there were great revivals in those places. But things are happening in different places in the world that are staggering. You know, we think about the church in China, and for often, you know, for a long time we thought, man, they're, they're, they're persecuted, they're suffering, and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, what was going on? God was refining his church. And that church was alive and well. In fact, it was healthier than the church in the place that had freedom to worship. And these movements are going on. The point here is this, that God's grace is not done until God is done with his plan. And for you in particular, if you're still breathing, you are still one who has the privilege of carrying the message of God's grace to people, even if they seem hostile to you. So there's always an abundance of God's grace. Until he comes again, the mission of the church still remains to take the gospel to those who don't know him, to train those who come to him in the ways of God and ultimately together to bring glory to his name by being obedient to his word. It's very simple when it comes down to it. But there's one more lesson from this this account that I think is helpful for us, and and this takes us back a few chapters to chapter 5, and it's the power of testimony. Do you remember the last time Jesus was in the region of Decapolis? He had gotten out of the boat, and he encountered a demoniac, a man who was possessed by a demon, and the people used to shackle him down, but he would break free. You remember that? And he ends up casting all the demons, legion, out of this man, into the pigs. And then the pigs go running down to the water and they die. And here's what Jesus says to this man after he has cast out those demons from him. This is Mark chapter 5, and this is verse 19 and 20. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I would like to think, and I don't think it's too improper to think this way, that the testimony of this man in sharing what Jesus had done for him stirred up people in that region so that when Jesus arrived in that same region, they came out to see him. They came out to find out who this person is. And they listened to him based on the testimony of this one man. Now, friends, hear this. Do do not underestimate the power of your gospel testimony. Don't underestimate the fact that you have a story to tell. 
Don't underestimate the fact that, that you have a gospel message because of what Christ has done in you that other people can hear about. You might feel awkward sharing it. You might feel strange communicating to someone who's an unbeliever. But that's the way that God actually brings people to a place where they understand the gospel is by means of testimony. And you might think, well, I don't have much to say. If you're a child of God, you have been radically changed. You have new life. You see. You have hope that other people don't have. You have a certainty about, about the, the, the coming of the Lord again. There's so many things that it brings. And so just share the joy that you have in Christ and lead them to then the core truths of the gospel that, that are the, the reason for that joy. And don't be surprised that a week later, a month later, a year later, or 10 years later, the fruit of that conversation will result in the, the life changed of that person that you're talking to. So don't be hindered about speaking about Christ's work in your life, past, present, and future. Friends, proclaim it. Share that testimony. So that's the, the spiritual lessons that the disciples are learning. Friends, th these are some of the lessons that they've already learned. They've already learned that Jesus is the bread of life. But isn't it true that sometimes we need to have things repeated? Isn't it true that sometimes we need to have things repeated? Isn't it true that, oh, you get the point, right? <laughs> it's true, and you know what I'm talking about. So many of you are parents here, right? If you're going to be training, you're going to be nurturing. The repetition is just part of what you do. So let's move now from these spiritual lessons to spiritual blindness. And I, I, just, I just would like to say, as we come to this next part of the, uh, of the text, verse 11 and following, it's deja vu. It's a here we go again. Jesus leaves the region of Decapolis and gets into a boat and takes them to the town of Dalamanutha, which is likely on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere near Capernaum. And it says he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanutha. And who does he encounter next? But the Pharisees. Right? The religious leaders. They're coming out to confront Jesus. And as I was studying this, I was reminded of our time in 1 and 2 Samuel. And do you remember as we were walking through 1 and 2 Samuel, here is David the king. The story is about David's uh, his ascent to the throne and, and the, the trouble that he went through in that process. Who was it that was always nipping at his heels? It's the Philistines. They're always showing up. He's in the wilderness. Oh, no, here are the Philistines, you know. He comes to a city. Oh, no, the Philistines are here. They're always showing up. The opposition to the things of God will always be showing up. And here we have the Pharisees representing the religious leadership of that day, and they are here to be a thorn in the flesh to Jesus, just like the Philistines were a thorn in the flesh to David. They come, and they're antagonistic toward him. Now, notice, first of all, that they tested the Lord. This is a, a high-pressure testing. It says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Listen, they weren't coming to have a discussion. This wasn't kind of like a frank open debate. They were coming to put him in his place. 
They were coming to create something so that as a result of this conversation, they could point to him and they could accuse him of something. And so it says, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now get this. They had already seen Jesus perform miracles in their very presence. But chapter 3, verse 22 says that although they had seen him perform miracles, their answer, their solution was to attribute those things to the work of the devil. I mean, they'd seen him heal a paralytic in, the presence, uh, in their own presence. The healing of the man with the withered hand, which, of course, they got upset about because it was on the Sabbath, right? And then, of course, the feeding of the 5,000. Certainly they heard about that. And there's so much more that, we, that they, I'm sure, had heard about. But they wanted a sign. They wanted some proof. They wanted Jesus to prove something that would show them that he truly is divine. Now, it's a sense in which you could say as if Jesus hasn't already done that. But what they fail to realize is this, that God doesn't play our little reindeer games. In other words, we don't come and demand things from God. God demands things from us. And they're coming demanding a sign. Show us a sign. Show us that you're God. And friends, that will continue on until Jesus ultimately goes to the cross. Now, if we fail to see what he has already done, he may be patient with us for a while, but eventually we will be ensnared by our unbelief. If we fail to, to hear or, or to heed what he has already said, he may be patient with us, but our disobedience will only demonstrate that we are in the grips of unbelief. So now we're told here that they are arguing, and they're arguing to test him. There was really no desire for a sign. All they really wanted was simply proof to convict him, to confront him, and clear evidence that would point to discrediting him. By the way, Jesus would hold them off. He performed miracles, but he would hold them off, and ultimately there would be a sign. It's called the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how do the religious leaders respond to that sign? <laughs> Sadly, not in belief. You see, they had already come to their conclusion. He's not God, and they want to get rid of him. They've already met together and consorted together and desired to kill him. That took place earlier in the gospel. So they tested the Lord. Secondly, they grieved the Lord. Notice how Jesus responds here. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Now this is not so much a sigh out of anger, but a sigh of despair or dismay. Just as God was disgusted with the complaining and the antagonism of the children of Israel in the wilderness, so Jesus is dismayed with the antagonism and these, this, this attitude of the religious leadership that comes to confront him. So he refers to them as this generation, which is an Old Testament expression of alienation and opposition. 
God spoke this way in the days of Noah. This is Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So this generation is the opposite then of righteousness. He also spoke about the the Exodus generation in this way. This is Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And friends, again, the irony of this text is that the Gentiles who are described by the Apostle Paul as far off are actually far closer than even the religious people of Jesus' religion, if you want to put it that way, right? The Jewish religion. They're so blind by what they think they know and the system that they have created that they can't even see the Messiah in front of them. And so ultimately, they are rejected by the Lord. He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. No, I'm not going to give you a sign. And he left them. I think it's kind of humorous, personally. Got into the boat again and went to the other side. So no sign will be given to this generation because they're already settled in their unbelief. They won't believe even if they are given a sign. But get this, friends. People don't come to faith because of signs and wonders. So much of the church has been caught up with this. Oh, they want to see something special. They want to see some manifestation of God. They want to see some power on display. But people don't come to faith simply because they've seen the the, the show. Faith comes first. Then we see. That's what Scripture teaches. It is faith that opens our eyes. And as our eyes are open, then we can see what is true. Listen to Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So we hear the gospel. We hear the words of Christ. We hear the text of Scripture, and we believe. We're not looking for God to somehow zap us. We believe what he says because he is the one who's saying it. And he has proven himself to be trustworthy over and over and over again. And so this this spiritual blindness ultimately is rejected. And the disciples are watching all this, they're listening to all this, they're observing all this, and they're learning in the process. And then we have spiritual dullness. And here Jesus exercises rebuke. But this has more to do with the the, the disciples themselves. Now Mark via Peter gives us some information at the front end of this little section. And he's doing that to help us along in the story so that we'll understand the impact of what's about to take place. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, that's the disciples, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And of course, we're who are reading this are saying to ourselves, well, wait a second, why is that a problem? Hasn't he already just multiplied tons of bread for 5,000 people and multiplied bread and fish for the 4,000? And the answer is yes. 
But Mark wants us to know about the bread ahead of reading the next line so that we can understand the significance of their dullness. And notice the master's warning. He says, he says, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So let's consider this, this warning. Notice the three words. He cautioned, watch out, beware. Now, as a pastor, I've had the, the privilege through the years to go visit people in their homes. Sometimes they're people that I know. Sometimes they're people that I don't know. And I've come up to many houses where there is a big sign, and it says, beware of dog. I always wonder why they don't put the dog, but that's, that's a whole English thing. Um, beware of dog. And you know, sometimes you get, you, you read that sign, you're like, okay, I'm going to be careful here. And what you hear behind the fence is like a, yep, 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 yep. And it's a little chihuahua that's just going nuts. And you're like, all right, yeah, I actually want to beware a chihuahua because they won't start barking, you know, all day long. But other times we hear the low barking of a pit bull or a Great Dane, you know, it's you know, when you hear a low bark, you're just like, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. And you know, there might be a Rottweiler behind there. In fact, up by our house, I think the people have, have, have gone, they've moved, but there used to be a couple of, of pit bulls. And you'd, you'd go for a walk, and literally you'd, just, you'd want to cross the street to walk by that house, you know, because the pit bulls, you know, behind there. But I've also noticed that I have not yet gone up to a house where it says, beware the cat. You know, as, as you're going to open the front door, it's like, Aah! you know, it, it just doesn't, you know, unless I'm at a zoo or an African safari or something like that, it, it's not going to say that. Now, I'm just, I'm just trying to, buy, buy, by some humor and illustration here, trying to, trying to press this a little bit. What Jesus is saying, though, is, is beware with the weight of a Rottweiler that is standing behind the fence. This is a serious warning. Jesus is not playing games with his disciples. He wants them to get what he's about to say. This is a very serious time of lesson and instruction for the disciples. So watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And of course, leaven is that yeast that ferments and causes dough to rise. It's used in Scripture as an image of this unseen, pervasive influence. And in this context, it really points out to the idea of, of the influence of sin that comes from these two particular groups. Now, the Apostle Paul, in dealing with the Galatian church that had drifted back from, I want to say, a, a true spirituality to a more legalistic spirituality, he shakes them up and he says, a little leaven does what? Leavens a whole lot. So you've got to get rid of that leaven. You've got you to purge it out. So what is the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? Well, the reality is um, the Pharisees and Herod really didn't have much in common. In general, it's a warning to the disciples about the sinful influence 
of the world around them that is seeking to draw them away from Christ and his gospel message. So it's an influence that simply seeks to be in opposition to Jesus. I'm reminded of of Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Part of the instruction there is be careful of the influences that you put yourself under because they will draw you away. There's a progression in that, in that passage. And I think there's a general attitude here that is being communicated. But I think more specifically, we could think about the characteristics of these two groups and come to this conclusion. On one side, you have the Pharisees whose influence would be that of hypocrisy and legalism. Don't get, don't, don't get caught up in that, guys. Beware of that. And then you look at Herod, who would still consider himself a Jew, but he's just living out all worldliness. And he's willing to do whatever he can to get the wife that he wants, and he's the king, and he's going to exercise his authority, and it doesn't matter what other people think. In either case, their influence would cause the disciples to forget about Jesus and his bread and only or only consider themselves. So although the Pharisees and Herod have different values and are opposed to each other in so many different ways, they are both united against Jesus. And friends, it is this uniting against Jesus that is the influence ultimately that he's concerned about. Now, Jesus is, is compelling them. He's warning them. And how do the disciples respond to Jesus' warning? Here is the Rod Phillips version, the RPV, if you would like. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples said, Squirrel! 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 Oh, now that you mentioned leaven, it reminds me, we don't have any bread. Where are we going to get bread? Hey, Matthew, what are we going to do? Did you bring any bread? No. What about John? Did you bring any bread? No. Right? I mean, isn't that what's going on here? Jesus is pouring himself out, pleading with them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of Herod, in verse 16, and they begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Isn't that a picture of, of us? <laughs> oh, not me. No, no, it wouldn't be me. No, no, no. There's a dullness here. There's an unwillingness to actually be tapped into the spiritual dynamic. They're listening to Jesus, and their mind is on other things. There's just a dullness that's going on here. Now, I'm not, I'm not being hard on the disciples, because if you remember, Mark is getting his food for his, his gospel from Peter, the disciple. And Peter is giving an account of his own failure in this context, He's showing us the denseness and the dullness that they were all experiencing. They're so spiritually dull and easily sidetracked. I mean, they were just really ultimately a motley crew. What patience Jesus must have had with them. And friends, Jesus has patience with us. Because so many times 
what we need is right there on the pages of Scripture. It's coming from a sermon or it's coming from a, a study that we're doing together or in the context of counseling or maybe in a small group or, or at home group or maybe when you're just fellowshipping with another believer. The answers are there and it's like, woo. We just don't have eyes to see it. We don't have ears to hear it because our minds are just tracked in other places. It's the master's warning. Now notice the rebuke. We have nine questions here. Not questions that are intended to shame, but to instruct. Now look closely at the questions and the themes that Jesus is bringing up. Question number one, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And the disciples are saying, um... Uh, well, um, do you not yet perceive or understand? Possibly, I think so. Maybe not. Apparently not. Are your hearts hardened? Maybe, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Yes. Um, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Well, we see but maybe not like we need to, and we, we hear, but maybe not like we should be hearing. And, and do you not remember? Uh, remember what? Um, like your miracles, your healings, um, your casting out of demons, that kind of stuff, or, or your teaching, um, your amazing power over the storm. Um, apparently not. Um, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Oh, 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 we, we know the answer. Oh, 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 we know, we know. Twelve. Good job, good job. Well, what about when we broke, uh, we, we had seven baskets for the, 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 the 4,000, or seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full or broken pieces did you take up again? Ooh, we had the answer. It's seven. And then the last question, do you not yet understand. That's the one that's look, look what I have done with you, disciples. We've gone through the, the feeding of a multitude twice. You've been a part of it. And yet you're still Arguing and fussing over the fact that you only have one loaf of bread? Who do you think you're with? Now, did you get the themes? The theme of bread, the theme of lack of perception or understanding, the inability to remember, the hardness of hearts. These questions are designed to show the disciples the hardness and the dullness of their hearts towards spiritual things that Jesus has been teaching them since the beginning. Now, it wasn't that they were a lost cause. Step back and get the bigger picture. Jesus is nurturing the spiritual growth of his disciples. And there is a dullness going on. And Jesus is addressing the dullness, and he's challenging them to say, look, here's everything you need, but do you even see it? Do you even understand it? Their hardness and dullness came as a result of familiarity. 
You know, when, when someone's going through the motions again, they're going through ministry again, or maybe, maybe it's like, oh, the pastor's preaching on a passage. Oh, I've studied that before, and yeah, we've done this before. And there can be a sense in which you just kind of, you just kind of settle down, and this is familiar. And I mean, Tim was getting to that when we were talking about you know, the singing of Christmas carols. And what do we, do we even know what we're singing? Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Are you faithful? Are you joyful? Are you triumphant? Well, obviously, you know, oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. You're not joyful. You're not triumphant. You're just going through the motions. Why? Because you're so familiar with things. And it's so easy for us who are talking about the things of God week in and week out in church in context of small group and home group and fellowshiping together that it becomes somewhat familiar and it becomes somewhat mundane and we're not impacted by it like we should. So Jesus is giving them a wake-up call. Do you understand? But twice Jesus has shown them the provision of physical bread. We saw that. And both times he's showing you the bread of life. The disciples had also been sent out two by two and were to take no provisions with them. And the implication is that they came back and demonstrated and communicated that God had provided for them. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us in chapter 22, verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing, because God provided for them. Now, these questions serve the reader or listener to consider their response to who Jesus is. Am I out? I'm still on? Okay, um, so the question that, that we're asking ourselves now is this, who is Jesus and what has he done? Do we have ears to hear, friends? Do we have eyes to see? Do we have minds that desire to remember? Are our hearts hardened by the familiarity of God's word because it's been taught? And it's been before so many times. Let's bring things now to a close. And I have three concluding thoughts that flow out of this text for us to consider this morning. Number one is this. I think it's important for us to recognize the reality of spiritual blindness. And the cause for that spiritual blindness being man's continual unbelief. So people can come face to face with the Jesus of the Bible and totally reject him. You know that. Because you have coworkers that you share the truth of the gospel with. You have friends or neighbors or family members, and you're giving them the truth. You're not trying to force it on them. You're just trying to show them. This is, hey, you ask me what is it you know, I do and why do I believe this? I'm telling you why and I'm telling you how and that kind of stuff. But people just have a blindness. All the evidence is there, but it is rejected by them. Now hear this. Man ultimately does not go to hell because of specific sins, although 
our culture would think, oh, you Christians think, you know, if, if I commit adultery, I'm going to hell, or if I steal, I'm going to hell, or whatever. Man doesn't go to hell for those specific things. Those might be part of the package. Man ultimately goes to an eternity in hell because of his ongoing, continual, stubborn unbelief. And friends, there's no way that you can change that unbelief. The only one that can change the eyes of the blind is Jesus himself. He's the one that opens blind eyes. And so our approach then to those friends, those people we love, is not to somehow cram more truth in them and somehow argue with them. It's to pray that the scales of blindness would be removed and it's nothing that you can do. It's only what he will do. And you rest in that. And that just changes your approach. You, you end up being softer and more tender with people, understanding that you can't, you're not going to force this. God is the one that's going to do this. And when it happens, it will be a wonderful, beautiful display of his grace and his glory. Secondly, the warning concerning spiritual dullness and this key word here, influence. Now, friends, my, uh, uh, I have a genuine fear as a pastor that there are too many Christians who live in this world of spiritual dullness. People who are true believers, who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but over time have allowed the influences of the world to jade and to shape their thinking and their understanding about the things of God. It's, it's, it's simply a, a dullness because it's a wandering away from what God actually says. And so as a result, they allow ungodly influences to shape their thinking. Now, let me kind of give you an example. Spiritual dullness will leave you looking for or expecting something from Jesus. And that's why I think so many people within the body of Christ are looking for a spiritual zap. They're looking for a spiritual experience. Hey, God, I, I, just, I need a spiritual zap. And so they, they go to a church where they're going to get some pow and wow. Oh, this is great. The problem is the zap fades. And it's not really a spiritual zap at all. It's just an emotional hype. But they perceive it as being a spiritual event, and it's not. Or maybe they're just like, you know, God, I, I, I just want health and I, and I want wealth. And there's a whole, whole crowd under the broad umbrella of, uh, uh, of the, the, the body of Christ that are just pursuing health and wealth and prosperity and that kind of stuff. Friends, that is not the reality of the gospel. Ultimately, Jesus doesn't care about your wealth. Because you and I have riches far beyond imagination. Because we are his children. We have an inheritance. We have a place set aside for us in heaven. Sometimes we're, we're looking for and expecting that our problems will disappear. Now, how many of you wish your problems would disappear? How many of you know that, that some of them will and some of them won't? And some problems will disappear and new ones will enter, right? Jesus didn't come to say all your problems will disappear. 
I'm sure there were people that came that day to, to listen to him. Well, there was three days, and they listened to him, and, and they, they heard, and they, they believed, and on the way home, they got a blister on their foot. Well, how come God didn't take care of this blister? Hey, listen, you're, you're a human being. I've created you to be a part of this world, and part of this world means there's going to be suffering, even a blister. So you're going to have to learn how to live with that and how to glorify me with that. Sometimes they just simply want success in life or no more suffering. See, these are all thinking that come from outside of God and his truth. The better question for us to ask is this. What is Jesus expecting from us? Faith. Obedience. Humility. Repentance. And you put all that together, there's one word that really describes what he's expecting from us. And the word is faithfulness. It encompasses all those things. All right? What does the Bible say? It is required among stewards that a man be found faithful. A steward is the manager. God's giving you all sorts of things. He wants you to be a good steward. And he wants you to be faithful in what he has given you. Faithfulness is so important. So friends, there's a warning for us regarding the potential of spiritual dullness in our lives if we allow influences of this world to shape us rather than Christ himself through his word. Third, the need for spiritual eyesight. Even we as Christians need at times to wear spiritual glasses, right? We need corrective lenses. We need the ability to see clearly. And I, I, these three words really emphasize some aspects of that. There is a need for repetition. What is it that Jesus is seeking to teach you by virtue of repetition? I mean, is Jesus saying to you, hey, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? But then he'll say, can you see me now? Because what we hear is only helping us then to see. And the ability to see then is only helping us then to believe. And this repetition is, a, is an opportunity for us to say, okay, God is trying to teach me something. You may have been under this spell at different times. Maybe you're having your own personal devotions, whether you have it a lot or you don't have it a lot, or maybe you listen to the radio and you hear something and you maybe go to a home group and you're like, Hey, what they talked about on the radio or what I read in my Bible this morning and what we're talking about at home group tonight is like the same thing. And then you come to church and we happen to be talking on a particular passage and it happens to address the same thing and you're saying, okay, this is really spooky, right? It's not spooky at all. This is God using all these means by which to point you to say, hey, listen, there's something I want to address. There's something I want you to see. There's something I want you to hear. Will you listen? Will you hear? Will you believe? Then there's recognition. Are you beginning to comprehend who Jesus is? Can you see how the Jesus of the Bible is so very different than the Jesus that is presented by our culture today? It is aggravating at times when people caricature Jesus in a certain way. You're like, you haven't read the Bible. And they would say what? 
Oh, yes, I have. I've read the Bible from cover to cover. No, you haven't. How do I know that? Because most Christians haven't. And if you're presenting this kind of Jesus, it's clear you haven't read the Gospels. Because that's not the Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. You know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Well, in the Gospels, you don't always see that. He's certainly not that way in our text today with the Pharisees. And then open to the book of Revelation, you'll find a different Jesus there. See, this society wants to change their picture of who Jesus is. It's not the same Jesus of Scripture. So what makes him out as being unique? Well, that's the point of what we have in the Word of God, showing how he is ultimately the only one who could be our Savior, the only one who's qualified to be that suffering servant. And then there's this word remembrance. You know, throughout Scripture, we see God's people taking time to remember the things of God, uh, the things that God has ultimately done. We see stones placed next to a river. Um, we see festivals and feasts that are established to remind God's people of his providential hand and his faithfulness to his covenant. Friends, that's why, that's why the church ultimately established something like Christmas, not because Jesus is actually born on the 25th of December. I hope that burst your bubble, just so you know. All right? It's simply a day set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus. What's more important is the birth of Jesus than the specific day. Because we want to remember. It's not just that Jesus came as a baby. You know? The point is, oh, he's so cute. He's so precious. Look at him. Oh. That's not the point. The point is that God has come in the flesh. He's humbled himself. He's took upon himself the form of a servant and is made in the likeness of man. He's let go of his, his privileges of heaven so that he can be like us. He can feel life like us and he can, he can identify with us. And he comes not just to be born but to die as we have said so many times this morning. In the New Testament, we have ceremonies that are opportunities to remember. The Lord's Supper, obviously, body and the blood of Jesus. In baptism, it's a reminder of the darkness of our life before Christ and the new life that we have because of him. Then there are weddings. I'm thankful for weddings. You know why? I get to preach the gospel to unbelievers. If you're going to get married... You're part of Gateway, and you're going to have me do your, do your wedding. Just letting you know up front. Yes, that wedding's all about you, but it's not. Because God has instituted it in such a way that that wedding is a public demonstration of his relationship with his church. And weddings are public. And God has instituted that public arena so that his gospel can go forward. And that would also be true of funerals. Funerals are an opportunity to point to the hope that we have in Christ and what he has promised. And I'm just sharing these things with you just to say there's this point of remembrance. God is at work in all of us here today. Everyone in here. Seeking to nurture you in your spiritual growth to become more and more like him, to be conformed to him. The question is, are we receptive 
to his nurture? Are we willing to listen to what he said? Are we willing to, to hear the hard words that will allow us then to grow and to change? Lord, we just ask for your strength. We look at this passage and we see the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. They're just totally against you. And we see you and your power on display multiplying these loaves and fish, providing not only physically but, but also demonstrating by that picture the spiritual food that you are for us. But Lord, we can be so much like these disciples who are dull. We just don't get it. Oh, we know it, but we don't get it. Or we see it, and we don't get it. Lord, help us today to, to, to do some soul searching, to, to reflect on our, our walk with you, to consider whether or not we've allowed ourselves to slip into this place where we are just not shaken by your truth that we're not sensitive to what your word says, that, that, that we're just not thinking spiritually at all. Lord, revive us. Renew us. Convict us, but comfort us Lord, with your gospel. We ask this now.